0: We thank you, O Lord, that we can gather in this place with our Bibles, that we can hear from you, the living God, clearly. You, you speak in a way that is clear and understandable and authoritative and reliable, always faithful and true as we read your word in the Bible. And so we pray that as we look into 1 Thessalonians tonight, that, that you would use your word in a profound and in a very specific way in every single heart that is here tonight. We pray that you would encourage believers, and we pray that you would convert the unbelievers. We pray, O God, that you would be glorified as we give thanks to you this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're going to look tonight at a verse that is probably the, the go-to verse on Thanksgiving Day. Uh, and appropriately so, because for a Christian, it ought to be, every day ought to be Thanksgiving Day for us. We, we've never really had a bad day in our lives, have we, when we consider what we deserve. Right? We deserve hell. We deserve the lake of fire. We deserve judgment. We deserve the hot anger of God, every one of us. And if you've gotten anything, anything but that, you have every reason to give thanks. Every reason to give thanks. Well, tonight what I want to do is I want to preach really on reasons to give thanks from a a very simple and a very short verse. And we're going to look kind of at the whole book of Thessalonians as well. So if you have your Bible open, we're going to turn from different passages in Thessalonians. But follow with me as I begin in chapter 5, verse 18. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I had a professor in seminary. His name was Dr. John Hannah. He taught one of my church history classes, And he has put it like this when talking about Thanksgiving in the life of a Christian. He said, we are often preoccupied with ourselves, and when we are preoccupied with ourselves, we lose the grace of being thankful. We live in a world that is preoccupied with self, and even in our own lives. We can be preoccupied with self. We can be totally consumed with self that we forget and lose the grace of being thankful to God. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15, the apostle Paul talks about being thankful. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Very next verse. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then the very next verse, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him. What does God want for you and me? He wants us to be thankful he wants you and me to be thankful in our lives, at work, as we are with the people of God, as the Word of God is dwelling in our hearts, as we are living in unity in the church congregation. God's call for every one of us is to be thankful. But contrast that with what the Bible says about unbelievers. One of the great marks of the Bible of an unbeliever According to Romans 1.21, is that they do not honor God, nor do they give thanks to God. The non-Christian is marked by not giving thanks. A little bit later on in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 3, in the last days, difficult times will come. And then Paul goes on to talk about how people will be lovers of self and they are ungrateful. One of the marks of this world, one of the marks of the end days, one of the marks of the ungodly, of the non-Christian, is that they are ungrateful. And yet, right here, what we read in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, in everything, do you see it in your Bible? In everything, give thanks when we gather for worship and when you have a flat tire. When you're late for a meeting and when you're engaged in a discipleship meeting. In everything, give thanks. Our thanksgiving ought to result in thanks living. God calls everyone to be thankful. And not just to be thankful, but we ought to be thankful at all times. At all times. There is no time in my life, no time in your life, when we have any excuse for not being thankful. We can't blame it on anything else. We can't blame it on others. We can't blame it on circumstances. We cannot have any excuse for not being thankful. God tells us, give thanks in everything. Well, then the question is, okay, Jeff, I hear what you're saying. How do I do that? How do I do that? And in your outline, I give you a couple of little bullet points by way of introduction. Number one, it all begins with the right theology. Why? Because the Bible doesn't just say, well, just give thanks because everything in life is perfectly good. We, we recited it tonight. Give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good. We can always give thanks because of what we know. Our theology is grounded in the character of God. Second, we can always give thanks because we must be humble. Or this comes from a heart of humility. Where where we are those who must live lives of lowliness. We recognize that we are undeserving. Can I say it again? We deserve hell. We deserve wrath. And nothing but that in our sin. How? How do we live lives of thankfulness? we got to have the right theology. It comes from a heart of humility. It also, third in your outline, it comes from a God centrality. You see, if we have a life where I'm the center of all things, I'm not going to be thankful because I can't control everything and things don't always go my way. But if God is the center of all things and I exist to bring him glory, I can give thanks in all things because God will be glorified in all things. How do we do this? We have to have the right theology. We have to have a heart of humility. It comes with a God centrality. It also comes with the heart of recognizing God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Saying, my God reigns. My God reigns and my God ordains everything for his glory. Everything that ever happens in all of the universe comes by the decree of God and he does it for his glory. And if that's the case, I can thank the Lord for everything. For the leaf that falls right in front of me. Mm -hmm. For that person that I meet and I engage in a conversation with, I can thank the Lord for them for the opportunity to give out a gospel tract to someone. I can thank the Lord for that. We can thank God in every situation in our lives. What I hope to do in the next little bit together as we sort of survey 1 Thessalonians together is I want to look at the larger context of the book and I want to draw out four reasons that we have, four reasons to give thanks to God. Now, you and I could read this book of First Thessalonians and we could probably draw out 50 reasons from the book. But I'm, I'm just being selective here and I'm gonna draw out four and maybe you could read it on your own and draw out many more. But here are a few to get us started. The first reason for you and I to give thanks tonight, if the Bible tells us give thanks in all circumstances, in everything. Number one, we ought to give thanks for sovereign election, sovereign election. Go back to chapter 1 with me, and as you're turning to chapter 1, I was in Myanmar a few years ago, and I was reading again a book by Charles Spurgeon titled Lectures to My Students. It's the lectures that he gave at the pastor's college that he taught at. Here's what he said, quote, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I never would have chosen him. And I am sure that he chose me way before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me after I was born. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he would have looked upon me with special love. Can you resonate with that? Why? Why did God choose us? But by his sovereign, perfect initiating love. Look at chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Let's begin in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. We're constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God his choice or his election of you the word chose or choice or election means for god to pick something out for his own possession the same idea is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2, Thessalonians 2, verse 13. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you or He elected you from the beginning for salvation. We have every reason to thank the Lord. <laughs> Because out of a mass of humanity lost in sin and running away from God in hate and rebellion and ruin, God chose, God picked, God selected, God elected people to be his own. And I'm one of them. And you're one of them if you're a believer here tonight. The same idea is found in Acts chapter 9 when Paul was converted on the road to Damascus and God told him that he is a chosen instrument of mine. Why Paul? Why was Paul elect of God and chosen of God and saved of God? Why? He was a chosen instrument from God. When we talk about sovereign election in your outline, we have every reason to give thanks because it means a sovereign choice that comes from divine love. That's what election is. It is a sovereign, unmerited, undeserved, even uninfluenced choice. It all comes from God's love. Romans 9 is the great chapter on God's election. God's purpose according to his choice always stands. According to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, God chose people to be his own. He did that in Christ. You see, when we talk about election, you and I ought to thank the Lord because God is the beginner of our election. God is the initiator of our election. God is the accomplisher of our election, and he's the the worker who does 100% of the whole election work. It is all done by God. It is all done for Christ and assured by the Holy Spirit. Ponder this for a minute. You were not neutral. God didn't look at you and say, oh, he's going to come and believe in me one day. There was nothing good in us at all. We were God-hating, we were rebellious, we were ruined, we were corrupt, we were radically corrupt, and yet in our sinful rebellion and in our spiritual deadness, God chose us in love, and all whom the Father chose from way, way long ago, Jesus came to die for us. And then the Spirit perfectly calls and summons us and preserves us for glory. And it all begins with a loving choice of God. A loving choice of God. Why does Paul pray and thank the Lord? In part, number one, because of the sovereign election of God. Joel Beeky counsels us, Dear believer, in, in electing you, God has given you everything. He has given you his Son, and through the Son, you have a new heart, and you have a new status, and you have a new life. So, Christian, humble yourself quietly before you're electing God. Remember that you owe everything to Him. Everything. Sometimes people who grow up in church hear the doctrine of sovereign election, and they think, well, how do I know if God has chosen me? I mean, how, how do I know if I'm elect? How do I know if I'm one that God has chosen from before the foundation of the world? If, if salvation is all a work of God and he does it all, how do I know that he elected me? Answer, you know that he elected you if you trust in him. You know that he elected you if you abide in him. You know that he elected you if you boast only in him. And if you absolutely forsake all confidence in yourself and you cling only to Jesus Christ, that's how you know that he's elected you. I love how Paul begins this prayer in the book. I thank the Lord because he chose you. Church family, what a reason we have to thank God. You didn't choose him. He didn't choose you because he knew you would choose him. He chose you out of his sovereign, uninfluenced, unmerited will. What a great decree of a kind God. Not only that, should we have a reason to give thanks for sovereign election, but look in your outline and we could go to chapter three now. We ought to thank the Lord for the sanctifying afflictions that God gives. As we're looking at chapter three, my, my wife, Elizabeth, worked for the president of Johnny and Friends when we were living in California, and she was working right next to Johnny Erickson office. Johnny said it herself like this, suffering provides the gym equipment on which my faith can be exercised. If you're going to grow in your Christian life, you're going to suffer you're going to suffer. And then she went on to say, heartache, heartache and affliction forces us to embrace God out of a desperate, urgent need. God is never closer to you and me than when your heart is aching. God is near to the hurting and the afflicted. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Follow with me as we, we sort of hear the heart of the Apostle Paul gushing out here. Verse 1, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you into your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined. The word is predestined for afflictions. Verse four, for indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were gonna suffer affliction. Well, it's come to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. But hold on. Did you see the end of verse 3 in your Bible? God says that we have been destined for afflictions. We have been destined for afflictions. Paul said in verse 4, we are going to suffer affliction. We ought to, can we say it? Thank the Lord for afflictions. Now, look, there, there are different kinds of afflictions. There are different... Spheres of afflictions, different intensities of afflictions. No doubt there are afflictions of body like Job had when he was afflicted. There are afflictions of testing and trials like Abraham himself had in the book of Genesis. There are afflictions of persecution and threats and oppression like the many saints in Hebrews 11. There are afflictions of all kinds of sufferings for the faith, like the Apostle Paul. He mentions a lot of them in 2 Corinthians. But really quickly, will you take your Bible and go back with me to Psalm 119? Look with me at Psalm 119, and I want you to go to verse 67. Psalm 119, verse 67. Again, why should we thank the Lord? This is such an otherworldly way of thinking. But notice what God says. Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Do you hear what he's saying? God brought affliction into his life to bring him back on the right path. And that's a good thing. That's a great thing. Just maybe let your eye look up to verse 50. Psalm 119, verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. What can give life and revival to the heart but God's word in times of affliction? Look down to verse 71. Verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Can you say that? It's actually good for me that I was afflicted. Why? Because it drove me to God's word. Look to verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. God's not being unfaithful. He's not being unkind. He is in faithfulness afflicting his people. Verse 92 if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. What, what does that mean? If you're perishing in your affliction, you need to trust more in God's word. You need to lean more on God's word. In verse 107, the psalmist continues. Verse 107, I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your Word. And then verse 153. Look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget your law. Why does God bring affliction? So that it would press us closer to Him and His Word. Why does God bring affliction? Hebrews 12. So that we would share His holiness. Why does God bring affliction? Colossians 1 so that we would enter into his sufferings. I was reading not too long ago in just the morning time the journals of David Brainerd. I just came across this. It was just such a perfect reference for this point in the sermon. In one of his journals on February 10th, David Brainerd said, I was exceedingly oppressed today, most of the day, with shame and grief and fear, under a sense of my past sins and my present barrenness and my coldness toward God, and my soul was sinking into shame and confusion. I was so afraid that even a shaking, blowing leaf brought fear to me today. But ah! Only when my soul confides in God and I find the sweet comfort of Christ, the spirit of humility and mortification and resignation alive in my soul, finally in the evening I was refreshed late at night as I was pouring out my complaints to God and my shame and my fear was turned into a sweet composure in God. Maybe you've been there, times of affliction and times of difficulty, and you think, this is a terrible day. I feel cold toward God. I feel afflicted. I I feel like I I have no love for God today, and you, you just feel weak. And yet you run again to Christ, and you run again to his word, and he gives you help, and he gives you personal reviving that you need. We can thank the Lord for the sanctifying afflictions that he brings into our life. They ought not to drive you away from Christ. They ought to press you harder into Christ. Third, in your outline, if you look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, let's look at another reason to thank the Lord. Number four, we can thank God because of the sufficient revelation that God has given. I mean, think about it. Right there in front of you, you have the Bible that is worth far more than all of the millions and millions and millions of dollars that you could ever accrue in this world. All the gold and all the silver and all the pleasures and all the possessions of 10,000 worlds couldn't even compare to the price of that Bible. Scripture is God's word. The laws and the precepts and the ordinances and the truth, we ought to give thanks to God for what he has given. Look at chapter 4, verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, finally then, brethren, we request and we exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you, by the authority of the Lord Jesus. What's Paul doing? He says, you have received instruction as to how to live. We have given you commandments from the Lord Jesus. And guess where we have that? Right here in God's word. There is nothing more valuable in your life than God's word. There is nothing in your home that is more valuable Than God's word, earthly speaking. Jonathan Edwards said, resolved to study the scripture so steadily and constantly and frequently so that I might find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of God's word. May that be be our resolve as well that every day of our lives it would be a resolve. I want to keep reading the word and keep studying the word and keep growing in the word and keep living. In the word of God. Chapter two, just flip back a chapter. Chapter two, verse 13. Paul said, for this reason, we constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, this is verse 13. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. We have the truth from God. We have the power from God. We have the life and heart transforming word of God. And By the way, did you notice in chapter four, verse one, when I read it, you actually can please God. You can please God. Don't live your Christian life wondering, oh, I can't please God. It, 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 I, I can't live up. I can't be good enough. I can't try hard enough. Chapter four, verse one says that we can walk and we can please God. Christian, thank the Lord for the sufficient revelation that he's given. Thank the Lord that he has given you a copy of his word, not only your paper Bible, but on your phone, you probably have more translations than you and I know what to do with, right? So what do we do? Christian, may I encourage you to appreciate the word. May I encourage you to meditate upon the word. May I encourage you to internalize the word and even to communicate the word to one another, appreciate it, meditate on the word, internalize the word, and communicate it one to another. I was reading a couple nights ago on the couch to my kids, and I was reading them a little biography of a, of a man in our church history book by the name of Peter Waldo. Peter Waldo and the followers, the Waldensians, lived in the 1100s, really 11, 12, 1300s with all the followers for a few centuries. They lived in France. And Peter Waldo and his followers lived in France, and they hired people to translate the New Testament from the original Greek into their language of French. Remember, they're they're living in the dark ages when the Roman Catholic Church said that no one can read and interpret the Bible but the Pope, or the priests and the leaders. Well, when the word was read in their language, they heard it. They believed it. They understood it. They, they memorized it. In fact, many of the Waldensians memorized whole books, even some of them, the whole New Testament, they had it memorized by heart. And they would go through the hills and mountains of France and the valleys and the cities, and, and they would go all through preaching in the open villages the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for that reason, most of them were violently martyred because of the sufficient revelation that they had and they loved. The word of God that they had, the word of God that they cherished. May that be so for you and me that we would have and cherish God's word. So, not only should we thank the Lord, just reasons to thank God tonight. Number one, sovereign election. Number two, sanctifying afflictions. Number three, sufficient revelation. And then finally, number four in your outline, why should we thank the Lord? What's another reason that we have? We have a strong preservation. We have a strong preservation. Look at the end of the book of Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he will also bring it to pass. Christian, do you hear that? God is faithful. He will sanctify you. And our text tells us, and you have it in your outline, that he will sanctify you individually. He will sanctify you individually and he will preserve you completely, body and soul and spirit. He preserves you assuredly, most confidently. He will preserve you to the end and he will do it faithfully. Christian, the hand that made the world is the same hand that holds you securely. The same hand that bids Satan and all the demons to flee by his own command is the same hand that invites you to come, and he holds you close to his heart. This is a strong and a very, very secure love. Why should we thank the Lord? because he's elected me, because he's afflicted me, because he's given me revelation, because I have a strong protection that God will glorify me on that final day. How could we not thank the Lord for all the things that he's given? But really quickly before we close, Thanksgiving is not only what we ought to do, Boy, this is a profound protection as well. There are a number of common sins that we all battle with. Thanksgiving is the ultimate antidote to put on so that we can put off these sins. Let me just list five of the sins. Number one, grumbling. If you and I battle grumbling, the sin of grumbling shows an expectancy for something different than what God has provided. When we grumble, it is a dissatisfaction at God's providential workings in a present moment. God, I don't like what you're doing. And you know what the solution is? Thankfulness. If you don't want to grumble, as we say in our home, be grateful and give thanks. Number two, another sin, sexual immorality, all sexual sin. Listen carefully, all sexual sin and all the forms, they all stem from greed and thanklessness. But as God calls us to be thankful, For what we have and where we are in the season of life that you're in and God's provision in Christ, that is the ultimate and the sure protection against all sexual immorality. Ephesians 5 is the proof of that. When sexual sin is committed, thanklessness has occurred. But praise God, thanksgiving is the great antidote to all immorality. Third in your outline, discontentment and envy. Discontentment and envy. When we live discontent with what we have, and maybe I envy what other people have, maybe their possessions or their power or their money or their job or position or family, if I'm envying them, I'm not worshiping Christ in that moment for what he's given in his fatherly plan. But rather, if I'm envious, I'm standing tall in my own pride, and I'm thinking that I know what's best for me in that moment, and I really won't be happy until I get what I want. And the solution and the antidote for that is thanksgiving. Fourth in your outline, disunity. Disunity, all quarreling, all disunity, all arguing comes from a prideful heart. It doesn't come from a thankful heart. It doesn't come from a worshipful heart. Disunity comes from a spirit of entitlement. It comes from a spirit of deservedness when thanksgiving, really by contrast, recognizes all I have is undeserving. And all that I have is flowing from God's gracious hand. So if we want to cultivate unity, we need to cultivate thanksgiving in our midst. What about the sin of laziness, time-wasting? When we squander time, when we waste time, that is thankless and faithless. Rather, we ought to be thankful for each day that God provides, every hour that God provides. We ought to be thankful as we live our lives for God's glory. Thankfulness. Is the antidote to these sins. We want to be thankful. We, we want to be grateful. We want to live lives of gratitude to God. And here we are in 1 Thessalonians 5, when the apostle Paul says in verse 18, in everything give thanks. This is God's will for you. What is God's will for your life? Be thankful. Be thankful. And tonight we have just seen a few ways in which we ought to be thankful. A few reasons that we have to be thankful. So really, back to our starting point. What is God's word for us tonight? What is God's word for us tomorrow? What is God's word for us every day in our Christian lives? In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Praise God that we have a Savior who calls us to come to him, not only to give thanks, but when we sin, we confess that he's faithful to forgive. And when he forgives, we thank him, we praise him, we worship him. He is good and worthy of our worship. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can be reminded from your word that we ought to be thankful. We ought to be grateful for all the many, many blessings that you have given in our lives, spiritually, physically. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.